The North Carolina Healthcare Association is a proud sponsor of the Do Politics Better podcast. The association is a united voice for hospitals, health systems, and care providers to ensure they can offer high quality, lower cost care to all North Carolinians. Visit nchealthcare.org to learn more about how hospitals and health systems are working to make healthcare easier, more convenient, and with better outcomes. It's the Do Politics Better podcast. I'm Brian Lewis. And I'm Sky David. Hundred and fifty episodes, Sky. Can you believe it? It feels like we just started, but it also feels like we've been doing this forever. I mean, really, it's our third year anniversary. Or at least we're coming up on it. It was early March in twenty twenty one. I have the date over there. What date? March sixth, twenty twenty one. Oh, you see it up on the poster. Yeah, Sky got me a poster uh, for my birthday celebrating the podcast. That was a rip off. <laughs> She doesn't like the quality of it. But yeah, we're coming up on three years, 150 episodes. We Again, we've just done it before. Thought only maybe our clients would listen to this podcast. Unbelievable how many people come up to us every day. Send us a note. Give us an, send us an email. Call us. Perfect strangers. Fun stuff. But thank you for listening. You Let's, make us sound like celebrities if we're not. <laughs> no, not celebrities. We still get called lizard people, interviewing lizard people. That review is still up on. Hey, to help us celebrate our yeah. 150th, can you go on and give us a review so maybe lizard people review gets moved <laughs> down a little bit? That would be just... Just do us a little solid. I mean, you here. could just say it's a mediocre podcast, but give us five stars. That would still be better than what shows up. Yeah, talk crap, but give us five stars or four stars. All right, let's get on with this 150th episode. We have some polling to talk about, and this is especially interesting because a lot of people have been asking us, what's going on with the lieutenant governor's race on the Republican side? Well, we've got polling. And we've been asking that too. First of all, thank you to Capen Consulting. That's David Capen, political guy here uh, in North Carolina. Actually, he's in the region. He, we he's know him. Now. Yeah, I think he's in Virginia. He started in Representative David Lewis's office. Representative Lewis was rules chairman of the House. But anyway, uh, David sent us some polling that you have not heard yet. So this polling was just in likely Republican primary voters. So we're not going to have any details on Democratic races. We should probably start with president, but I think we need to start with lieutenant governor because that's been a lot of water cooler talk. Number one for the lieutenant governor race, I said to you, who is Marlenas Hernandez Navoa? Because I see it listed here as a candidate or them. I don't know. I met her, I believe, at an event at the lieutenant governor's mansion. Oh, well, I've never heard of her. Yeah, well, I haven't heard of a lot of these people. Ernest. Ernest Reeves, coming in at 3.4%. We're burying the lead here because Hal Weatherman is leading this poll at 21%, followed by Seth Woodall at 18%. He's up in Rockingham County. Deanna Ballard, Senator Ballard, coming in third. No, 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 I'm getting this wrong. Yeah. Jim O'Neill. You can't read a pie chart, huh? Who ran for attorney general 
uh, back, I think, the last cycle, 2020, he lost to Josh Stein. He's coming in third at 16%. I think he's the DA out in Forsyth County. And then it's Senator Ballard at 14.5%. Everybody else seems to be under 10%. Looks like Jeffrey Elmore is at 7.6. Sam Page, uh, 7.6. Bottom line is we're heading for a runoff if this sticks. Now, I'm sure there's a lot of undecided out there. It doesn't seem to be an option in this polling from David. There's got to be undecided, and we'll just see how they break. But right now, uh, look for the lieutenant governor's race to stay on our mind for quite some time. I don't even know when the runoff election would be. I assume sometime in June, but uh, we'll get you some information about that. Uh, presidential politics guy. And no surprise here, Trump has the majority at 64% and Nikki Haley has 36%. Ambassador Haley did say this week she is staying in the race for Super Tuesday. That's us, March 5th. So she is a viable candidate as, as far as you can vote for her and it will count. You will see on your ballot Republicans, you will see Chris Christie, you'll see Ron DeSantis, Tim Scott. Those, of course, They've all dropped out, but Haley has promised that she's staying in at least through Super Tuesday, maybe even beyond. She did say she was going to stay in until the last vote was cast. That goes well into the spring. We'll see, though. They had some governor's numbers. Yeah, so this shows, again, no surprise that Mark Robinson is leading with likely Republican primary voters, but he's only leading at 53%. Dale Falwell has 29%. Bill Graham has 18%. So it looks like they're kind of cracking into that lead that he has had. Falwell goes back to number two. He's been languishing at third for quite some time. In fact, both he and Bill Graham have been under 10%. So they are starting to get out there, uh, or at least their message is getting out there. And voters seem to be moving from the undecided to a category. It's time to decide, North Carolina voters. Has to happen, actually. It is notable that Falwell got the endorsement of the NNO this week. This comes with the Scenic endorsement and other organizations. By the way, when I traveled this week to Asheville, saw quite a few billboards out there for uh, Treasurer Falwell in his run for governor. So there's been a lot of scuttlebutt this week about a couple mailers that went out in Representative Brockman and Representative Ray's districts. That's Cecil Brockman and Michael Ray, Democrats on the House side. They've got progressive challengers in their primary. So it got everyone's attention when the Carolina Leadership Coalition did mailers on behalf of these two Democrats. I've seen on Twitter that their primary challengers have really been elevating these by saying, you know, they work with Republicans, they don't do what the district wants them to do. It's important to know that the Carolina Leadership Coalition, while it is affiliated with Speaker Moore and the leadership in the House, this is an independent expenditure. It runs independent of them. So it has a board and they can put resources into anything they want. I think this is a matter of they've got two Democrat votes out there when it comes to the budget. Now, Representative Brockman, Representative Ray, Representative Willingham, others, they vote against Republicans a lot. 
I think I read the statistic that the average North Carolina Democrat votes with Republicans 67% of the time. And these outliers, they're at about 74, 75% of the time. So it's not a huge difference, but it is notable. Yeah. So we'll see if these ads help or hurt Representative Brockman and Representative Ray. We'll know on March 5th. In the attorney general's race, a Republican-backed PAC is running TV ads for Satana DeBerry. It's a Virginia-based group, and Justice for All, they are affiliated more on the conservative side of politics, but it's obvious that they would like DeBerry to be the nominee in the Democratic primary in hopes that she would be a weaker candidate against Congressman Dan Bishop, who's running as a Republican for attorney general. This is nothing new to politics. We have seen independent expenditures, dark money, however you want to describe them, play in the other ideological party and try to influence it. We saw when Dallas Woodhouse ran an IE for the Libertarian candidate in the Kay Hagan-Tom Tillis race. This is just political tricks, if you will. And I don't necessarily mean it as a negative. It's all fair. But uh, we, we will see if this has an effect on the voter out there, which we do believe it's going to be low voter turnout on the Democratic side because there is no presidential primary. So it could be a have, an, have a marginal effect on the outcome. We'll see how DeBerry does against Jackson. Finally, on the endorsement side, worth noting that Speaker Tim Moore did finally get the endorsement of President Donald J. Trump, something that he did not get two years ago, and it ended up booting him out of that congressional race against Madison Cawthorn. Congratulations, Speaker Moore. He didn't endorse your cousin who's running against you. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Close one. And finally, the courts. So last Friday, in the long battle between the governor's office and the legislature, the legislature got a partial victory. Drum roll. Go. That was a pretty good drum roll. (laughs) I'm kind of impressed. So there was a three-judge panel on Friday that heard arguments in extending an injunction. So you'll recall, possibly, I don't know, because there's so many of these lawsuits, that back in October, these judges had issued an injunction that the changes to the State Board of Transportation, the Commission for Public Health, Economic Investment Commission were likely unconstitutional, and they blocked those from going into place. So on Friday, judges said the fourth board, the Environmental Management Commission, could move forward. Now, this is impactful because those new members of the Environmental Management Commission had decided to back out of this lawsuit for obvious reasons. Then they would no longer be on the Environmental (laughs) Management Commission. Um, But the particular bills that are being challenged here are Senate Bill 512 and House Bill 488. Additionally, as we speak, the Leandro lawsuit is being argued at the Supreme Court. And this morning, the House Dems and Senate Dems issued a joint statement in support of Leandro. 
At first I thought it was an amicus brief to the court, but it was just a statement. Mm, that'll do it. <laughs> race of the week. This week's race of the week. We stay in Wake County, down in the, the southern part of Wake County at Senate District 13. This is the Republican primary race to challenge Senator Lisa Grafstein. Senator Grafstein is a first-term senator. She was redistricted out or basically double-bunked with Senator Chaudhry, and then she moved to Senate District 13. Well, Republican challengers are Scott Lassiter, who I believe is our soil and water district supervisor. So Mm -hmm. he's got some experience governing. (laughs) (laughs) I thought you were going to say in soil. And I was going to be like, yeah, Yeah. whatever that means. Whatever that means. And then there's Vicki Harry. Now you have heard Scott's name in NC Poll World because he was a part of the story this summer about Speaker Tim Moore from talking to folks here in Wake County. Both candidates seem to be on a glide path to not winning. There's been a couple mailers out. There's a few in the can that are coming out on both sides. N- neither candidate is on television. Mm-hmm. A lot of events. Now, you looked at some of the fundraising. There seems to be a little activity there, but not a lot even for Wake County. At the end of 2023, Vicki Harry had about 11,800 on hand. And at the end of 2023, Scott Lasseter had about 69,000 mm. on hand, but 50,000 of that was a loan. Okay. So he came into some money. <laughs> we understand that there's been a lot of back and forth about who drives the worst between these two candidates. Uh, apparently, they don't think much of each other's driving. You want to talk about that? It appears that Vicki Harry had a speeding ticket at some point. Ooh, scandal. Uh-huh. And Scott Laster had a DWI. Okay. I speed. Do you know that one time I got pulled over in college and I was wearing my nightgown and I'd gone <laughs> to pick somebody up at, at a bar and I got pulled over and the cop was like, have you been drinking? I said, no, I'm just a bad driver. <laughs> <laughs> I had to get out in the middle in the median in my nightgown and do a... <laughs> What is it? Field test. Yeah, field it. test. Yeah, and everybody could see me in my hot pink nightgown. So that was kind of embarrassing. At the same time, the, the bar's closed. <laughs> Police know what they're doing. Gotta mention that Vicki Harry does seem to have a lot of endorsements. Like okay. Representative Aaron Perret, who is the incumbent House member down in Holly Springs, Fuquay area. She endorsed uh, Vicki Harry. Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson. Americans for Prosperity, the Family Values Coalition. And then this was a surprise. Senator Vicki Sawyer, Senator Joyce Kravick, and Senator Amy Gailey all endorsed Vicki Harry. So it seems to be everyone against Scott here. Now, I've got his endorsements up. Are there any electeds that have endorsed him? Looks like Donnie Harrison. Okay, former sheriff here. Renee Elmers. Okay, boy, really digging deep on that one. Alan Swain, Mark Cavallaro. Didn't he run in that? No, no, he didn't run in that. Mark Cavallaro ran against Sidney Batch years ago. He did get the endorsement of the NNO editorial board. I was expecting more out of this race. I really thought we would see some fireworks here. 
just seems to be a lot of attacks on driving records, doing events, and putting out some yard signs. I was told by a Republican operative that they think that this race is doomed ultimately in the general election. And what I was told is Republicans really should concentrate more on the Terrence Everett race to replace Mary Wills Bodie. I don't even know who the Republican is on that side, but I was told, look, if you're going to pick up somebody, Republicans would be wise to just pack it up here and head up and try to pick up that Mary Wills Bodie seat. So we are going to profile that race once we get into the general election. There is no primary over there, but uh, that'll be a general election race of the week. So if you have a race you'd like for us to profile, drop us a note. Thanks to everyone who helped with this one. Our Dylan Watts interview was very well received and folks I think were really interested in that side of campaigns. So this week we talked to someone on the other side, Democratic campaign strategist Kimberly Reynolds. The Do Politics Better podcast is supported by the North Carolina Travel Industry Association. Founded in 1955, NCTIA has a distinguished history of partnering with the North Carolina General Assembly to strengthen and preserve tourism in North Carolina. Visit nctia.travel for more information on how you can support your local tourism destination and the thousands of North Carolina jobs it creates. Kimberly Reynolds, partner at Maven Strategies. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Start us off by telling us about your current job. What is your day-to-day like? What do you do? I do something different a little bit every day, so it feels strange to walk somebody through my day, but we help people get elected, and so that looks like different things for different people. So we have a compliance arm. We help them raise money. We help them with strategy. We do a little bit of mail. We do a little bit of digital. We do email fundraising. So there's not really a piece of someone's campaign that we don't touch somewhere along the line. And we have local candidates, we have legislative candidates, we have statewide candidates, we have state parties. So it's just really a little bit of everything. And as far as your clients go, you exclusively work with Democrats, correct? We do. Okay, no Republicans need to apply, but you're going to help us understand your part of the world, which I believe has a lot in common, even with Republican firms out there. Absolutely. Politics is politics and the infrastructure behind electing someone isn't different. Maybe the message is a little bit different and certainly the people we target is going to be different. But a campaign is a campaign, whether you have a D or an R by your name. Well, let's talk about you before we get into your firm's work. Who is Kimberly Reynolds? Where did you come from? Let's talk about your roots in North Carolina and where you picked up this great North Carolina accent. (laughs) So I like to say I'm a city girl with a country accent. I am from Greensboro. I grew up there until I went to college at NC State. But my dad is from Hamlet, North Carolina. And so my granddad was a rail man and they moved to Hamlet. That is where I think I picked up this accent. But I don't know, I gotta be honest, nobody else in my family sounds like me, and so my (laughs) daughter is constantly making fun of me and mocking me. I call it the hick chick syndrome, is when I was working at the Democratic Party, a lot of people thought, oh, with that little country accent, that little girl, and then 
they figured out very quickly that was not the case. So I, um, I had a lot of fun with that. You have a long history in North Carolina politics. Tell us about how you got where you are. I always wanted to do this in some capacity. When I was, I think I was in first grade, my first grade teacher worked for Howard Coble. And I, I don't know if she volunteered. I don't know. I don't know if I've made this history up, but this is the history as I've made up or I remember. Mm-hmm. She left to go to Washington, D.C. And I remember thinking, even as a young person, that sounds amazing. And I want to go to this place called Washington, D.C. So I went through high school. I like to argue. And so people said, you should go into politics. And I always said, I'm going to be a U.S. senator. Okay, yes, I'm going to be a U.S. senator. And I didn't know what that meant. And I had a job at Applebee's. And I remember sitting there and this guy said, I'm, an, I'm a political science major. And I was like, well, I want to be in politics. I'm going to be a political science major. I had no idea what that meant. Just there I went off into college and I was a political science major. And then I didn't know what to do with that. And then I went to college and I had a friend and I couldn't find a job and I had gone into finance. And then I had a friend call me up and she's like, hey, I know you want to be in politics and I've got this job. And do you want to come do research for Dennis Wicker's campaign to run for governor? And I was like, well, no, I don't want to do research. And she was like, well, we can find some other things. And so I ended up getting a job as a field organizer on Dennis Wicker's campaign for governor. And I never looked back after that. So that's year 2000. It was. My first, I started in October of 1999. Not to age myself, mm-hmm. folks, but I've been doing this a long time. Okay. Lieutenant Governor Wicker goes on to lose to uh, <laughs> District Attorney Mike Easley. Attorney General. Attorney General. Attorney General. Mike Easley. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, and- he lost soundly. <laughs> 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 I will say, though, like looking back, you learn a lot of lessons. When I think back about it, I had 26 eastern North Carolina counties. We had just had a flood. They were just really um, look like things were just out of out of normal for them. And, you know, they were trying their communities had been decimated by this flood. And Dennis Wicker decided to talk about hog lagoons. Uh-huh. And that we needed to get rid of hog lagoons. And I just remember going back as a, as a young person and saying, I'm in Eastern North Carolina and you're talking about that. And that is how they make a living. Right. And then in the West, nobody knows what a hog lagoon is. And I remember seeing a, a commercial of Easley and he is by the river and he's talking about clean water and clean air. And I just thought, we are probably not talking about the right things. And it, then you sort of think, well, what did the poll look? And what did the, And I don't know any of that as a kid, right? Like I didn't have, I wasn't privy to that. But I knew instinctively that going into Eastern North Carolina and talking about closing hog lagoons was a very bad idea. Where'd you go from there? I go from Wicker to running A.B. Swindell's campaign. Oh, yeah, Senator Swindell. Senator Swindell. Yeah. And he was the senator that was replacing Roy Cooper, because Roy Cooper was running for attorney general. So I've actually known the governor for as long as I've been in the political process and that team. And it was the first place where I found like I was at home because my maiden name is Nash and he was in Nash County. And this country accent, those folks, I mean, I sounded just like them and I had the best time. And I really understood the relationship that you build with a candidate and their family and their community. And it's just different. And it was really appealing to me and I really enjoyed it. And we were successful. From there, I went to Virginia 
and I did an attorney general's race, and I raised money for Whittington Whiteside Clement, who has the best name I've ever heard in my entire life. <laughs> right out of a John Grisham novel. Yes, and he loses. Okay. So I, then I come back to North Carolina, and I ended up the deputy Senate caucus director for two cycles, and we had the supermajority the first cycle. Then we, you know, we had that big redistricting bait, and they sued us for I think cutting the most counties, and that was the first time that they had sued us. And then it went to twenty-seven, twenty-three, and then I think it was maybe back to thirty fifteen when I left in two thousand six. We had Dylan Watts on the podcast talking about the Senate caucus program on the Republican side. And I've had a few comments since then from Democrats. Man, oh gosh, wish we kind of had that system to the degree, you know, Dylan talks about mm-hmm. it. it seemed well-oiled machine. He goes out and he does this recruiting. And I've been telling uh, Democratic legislators who, who weren't around back in the day, I'm like, this is your program that they're running. Can you talk about some of the origins of the Senate Democratic caucus back in the day? Well, it predates me a little less than a decade, but my understanding is in 1994, we came close to losing. We lost a bunch of seats. People just sort of, they weren't expecting it quite to the level that it happened. And so it sent this shock wave through the systems and they decided that they needed to do a better job. They needed to be better prepared. So I believe it started in around 1996. It really started growing and really getting structure to it and by 2000 I mean it was a well-oiled machine and you started hiring real consultants Mm -hmm. and you started spending money on polling and you started doing targeting and I don't know what they had done because it really does predate me and so I can't speak to what it what it looked like before but it professionalized and gave it structure in a way that I don't think campaigns had seen at the legislative level maybe congressional governor things of that nature but not that really like I said, structured look to it. And then you had the greats like Tony Rand and Senator Bassnight and Hoyle and Carr raising money into these things and putting their power behind it and believing in it. I don't know. I don't remember how Dylan said his is structured, but Senator Bassnight was sort of at the head of ours and, and really stuck to the legislative body and that piece. And Senator Rand was the political mind and ran the political arm of ours. So he was my mentor and my friend. I feel really lucky that I got to be amongst some, some greats and some legends and I look back, and those are some of my fondest memories. For the youngins who listen to this podcast, let's go down history a little bit. It's 1994. Democrats in the Senate were holding on to their majority by one vote. The House had gone Republican. It was a landmark election for Republicans because they had finally gotten at least a chamber in the General Assembly. Congress, by the way, had gone Republican first time in 40 years. It was a gut check for Democrats. Democrats were like, hey, we need to either get our act together and get organized or we're going to lose this thing. And the Democratic Caucus program, my understanding, was one of the first in the country and became a, a, a model for other states to to emulate. We want to get to your work, but I do want to ask you about what it was like to work with one of the best political minds I've ever known, Senator Tony Rand. I know a lot of young folks, you're thinking, who is Senator Rand? Kimberly, who is Senator Rand? He is, and I said I might start crying, but I really might. He was one of the smartest, most fascinating, gifted politicians I have ever seen 
you either loved him or hated him, I think, because if you hated him, it's because you envied the power that he yielded with his words and with his mind and that some of the things he could do on the floor. And I always remember looking across at the Republicans and they would do something and he would stick his hand in his pocket and jingle his change and look up. And I thought, oh, God, they shouldn't <laughs> have done that. Here it comes. Back then, I was a young woman and it was still a man's world. And to have someone with the power and the knowledge and just the political instincts that he had to take you under your wing and treat you like an equal was one of the gifts I will carry with me forever. And I remember just like calling him one day and being like, Senator, I want to do this. And I wanted to beat Hugh Webster. And I knew I could do it. This was the year Hugh Webster had voted against teacher pay. He had voted against the minimum wage. And he had filed a bill to raise legislative pay 40%. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I saw it was like, ah, and the lights went off and I was like, I have him and I have him square. And so I called Senator Rand and we're talking and he just told me, he's like, my dear, my dear, my dear, my dear. <laughs> um, God gave you a gut for a reason, my dear. You have to trust it. And, you know, and he says it in this, like, I can't even do it. Foghorn, leghorn voice. But that's what he taught me is that I had a gut and I could trust it. And most often it always led me in the right direction. And he empowered me to do that. And that's what I don't think people understand is like to be a 25, 26 year old woman and have these men empower you and support you. Um, And women too, but it was made, it was mainly made up of powerful men back there. And it taught me a lot of lessons and made my gut stronger and my ability and belief in myself a lot stronger. For our Republican listeners out there who, who may listen to Kimberly's words and go, oh, that's just a Democratic hack talking about a Democratic senator adoringly. <laughs> uh, you could, I will always talk about him adoringly. So, But another person who would sit here and validate everything you just said, Senator Tom Apodaca, who mm-hmm. was the rules chair after Tony mm-hmm. Rand. He would often give credit on the Senate floor that I learned this position from the man who had this position. Mm-hmm. Also talks affectionately about Senator Rand. He, like you said, you either loved him or hated him. Sometimes you could love or hate him on the same day. Absolutely. I'd put Senator Berger up there. I think people have a love-hate relationship mm-hmm. with him on the Democratic side. He uses power. Tony Rand knew how to use power. Yes, he Phil did. Berger knows how to use mm-hmm. power. Uh, Tom Apodaca, Bill Rabin. So moving on from being with the caucus, what did you do from there? It all starts blending. (laughs) (laughs) What did I do after the caucus? Oh, I went and worked for Nexus Strategies. I was one of Scott and Morgan's first employees. I think I was the first or second employee and stayed over there. And while I was over there, I was basically the point person for Walter Dalton's election to lieutenant governor and remember the Walter Dalton, Walter Dalton, Walter Dalton Brilliant, commercial. Eh? Yes. I remember I knew he had told me, he's like, Kimberly, we have to have an ad as annoying as Nick Gaff- Galifianakis. And he started <laughs> singing in is for something I is for integrity. And so I was like, okay. And so we get this Walter Dalton, Walter Dalton, Walter, Walter Dalton, Dalton wanted this. He said, yes, that? he said this. So he was the brain. of No, that? he, it, no, but he just said like, I want a good ad that people remember. So we get this ad out there. And so he comes to me one day and he's like, Kimberly. And I was like, what? He's like, we're going to win. And I yeah. was like, why? He said, because this woman came up to me and she said, you have the most 
annoying ad I've seen since Nick Galifianakis. And we stood there and we sang it together. And he was like, we're going to win. And he won a four-way primary, so pretty handedly. And it's 2008. We're still talking about that ad. Oh, it's a great ad. Still great ad. Nexus Strategies, by the way, that's Morgan Jackson, Scott Fowlman. They handle Governor Cooper's stuff. Right. So you you worked over there for a while. I worked over there for a while. And then when Walter got elected, I went and I spent all four years in his office. And so I was his legislative liaison for a while. And then I ended up as chief of staff. And so when he left office... I was chief of staff. Got a raw deal in 2012. It's what, January, going into the 2012 election, Governor Purdue says she's not running. Hey, you're up, sir. Get out of the bullpen. Start warming up. A nice guy, but just victim of timing? Is that what happened? Yeah, but I'll say this. Like, what I appreciated about him is that happened. He went home. He had a conversation with his wife, and he came back, and he said, I'm in. And he never wavered, and he never waffled, and he understood what was at stake. He is one of the smartest people I have ever met. And Um, kindest. And kindest. Unfortunately, I don't think that's how voters vote. Like, Pat McCrory came in, he slaps you on the back, and you kind of want to have a beer with him. And I think a lot of times we underestimate that that's what people look for. I mean, you look at Hillary. I mean, she could have written any piece of legislation. She could have done anything you want, but people don't want to hang out with her. And voters are a little different in that capacity, I think. But he, he... he did well. He ended up going out to Isothermal. He was the college president out there until his retirement. So I think it worked out for him pretty well. Let's pause and talk a little bit about your current job. And as you said, you represent individual candidates, some of the parties. Tell us about Maven Strategies generally. So Maven Strategies, what is funny that I just like to tell a little bit is that it was founded while I was walking at the mall with Maggie Barlow. So okay. we used to get up every morning and go to Crabtree Valley Mall. Are you 80? <laughs> I mean, maybe. Some days I feel like it. And this is a true statement. We, I mean, we saw all the oldies. We still walk at the mall a couple of days a week. And we are oldie Walmart. But it's warm in there and it plays music. And so at 6 o'clock when it's, you don't want to go out in the cold when you're a little bit older. Thank you, Sky. Is it, um, is it open at 6 in the yes, morning? Yes, don't tell my secrets. I don't want everybody to know. Don't let, don't let my secret out. But anyway, so I was at the Democratic Party. I had been ED for four years. I had these two young children. And I was just like, I don't want to do this anymore. Like, I miss my babies. I want to spend more time with them. And Maggie, who had been the House Caucus Director for three cycles, is had gone out on her own and been a compliance fundraising person for 13 years. And she was like, hey, let's do something together. Like, there's not enough women doing this. There's not enough women-led firms, and there's a lot of good candidates out there that need help. There's more than Morgan and Scott alone can take Mm -hmm. care of. So we decided to form Maven Strategies. And so next month, it'll be five years. And I would say 90% of our clients are women, but we... We sprinkle some men in there every once in a while. All right. So if you're a candidate out there and you're running for the House or Senate, you can call Maven Strategies and say, hey, I need a campaign consultant to help guide me. Are you doing the day-to-day work? Or are you doing the big picture, 30,000-foot stuff? How would you describe it? We don't it? do day-to-day work, per se. Um Maggie and I say that, but we're just the kind of people that if it needs getting done, we're not going to let you not have it. So we probably do a lot of work that ends up could be day to day. But most of the time, it's just helping them realize, okay, you have to 
have a professional campaign. I mean, it's to the basics of what does your logo look like? What does your website look like? Do you have the things you need? Okay, well, it costs a lot of money to run a competitive legislative seat. I mean, you're looking at seats that are now upwards of a couple of million dollars for a state Senate race. So how are you going to raise that money? What are you going to do? We help you write your campaign plan. We help you hire a manager in conjunction with the caucus. I mean, we've done a little bit of it all. We look at your mail. It really varies, but a lot of it is email fundraising, fundraising, compliance strategy. It really just varies. Every client is different. TV production, if they're doing TV ads? Not usually. I mean, the way the caucuses are structured, they have a set of vendors and you're, you're working through their vendors. So we don't get into TV. How do you, as a campaign consultant, interface with the caucus program? Could I, as a candidate, just go on the cheap and say, look, I'm just going to use the caucus program. I'm going to, I'm going to rely on the Democratic Party to help guide me. Kind of help me here. The caucus is at the top, right? I mean, and we are not in competition with the caucus at all. We are just another layer of what a campaign or candidate needs. So are we as a consulting firm in constant contact with the caucus? No. Mm -hmm. But through the candidate and the work they do, we understand, let's say, for instance, fundraising. We understand what their caucus goal is and what the caucus has told them and helped them realize they need to put their winning plan together. And then we take the back end of that and help them figure out how they're going to go raise that money. You know, sometimes, let's say, For instance, the caucus doesn't get involved in primaries. So some candidates will come to us and maybe we'll do some mail or something for them in a primary because the caucus structure isn't available because of the way the party is organized. So it varies, but the caucus, especially in those targeted races, is really, really involved in the day-to-day and the messaging and the targeting and all of those things in a way that we are not. So I'd like to mesh together some stuff that I've heard you say about y'all being a women-owned company and most of your candidates are women. And there's a stat out there that says women have to be asked multiple times to run for campaigns. And you're talking about fundraising, and that can be the most difficult part of a campaign. With mostly women, like how do you go about that? The stat is that women have to be asked seven times. It's an alarming number. I think... Part of it is that women look around and always assume there's someone better out there that can do it. Oh, well, don't come to me. There's somebody over there. Go ask John. Go ask somebody. And what's often so funny is when you go to some of these clients and you or you just look around and you're talking to them. And this, maybe I'm a biased woman, so this is, I mean, let me be clear about that. You're talking to a man and you're like, where's your wife? Because she was the PTA president and she was the this or the that. And I think women don't naturally weave together their skill sets into understanding that it's really good for political things. And when you have built those structures and you have raised money and, you know, raising money is just understanding your message, understanding why you're doing it and not being scared to call somebody and ask them. And it's hard, but once you get it down and you understand that your networks are going to be there for you and helping them build the confidence and just helping them, the old school term we used to do is Rolodex. It's just like, think about that person as a donor and they're going to give because of you and just building momentum and momentum builds on itself. So if you start and you get comfortable and you have a fundraiser and you do all the things, 
But it's really some of it. It's just confidence building and helping them put it on paper. And then once they start, I mean, they've proven to be prolific fundraisers. You look at Mary Wills Bodie, Sydney mm-hmm. Batch, Natasha Marcus is a member of the Senate, was raising a lot of money. Gail Adcock's a great fundraiser. Cynthia Ball. I mean, you name it. They're all doing it. It just, we just help them get started and help them build that infrastructure. I'm not giving away any uh, earth shattering secrets here, but I was talking to a Republican legislator uh, this year and I asked him how uh, his race was shaping up in the general election. He said, oh, I dodged one. The Democrats failed to recruit a woman in my race. (laughs) It would have been tough if they had gotten a woman. I just got a regular old guy. I think I got him. I mean, that really goes to your point, right? Women make great candidates when they don't run. So that a disadvantage to the party. It is. And I think, you know, this is one of the things that's just the disadvantage about how North Carolina is set up as a whole with this part-time legislature, yeah. it, this low-paid legislature. I mean, then they're They'd com- be higher paid if you hadn't done I an know. ad against... Your, your Hugh <laughs> Webster <laughs> campaign is part of the problem, I mean, Kimberly. What was funny about that, though, was that he was the sole signer on the bill. No one had co-sponsored, and it was sitting in rules. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that was the beauty. But that is the double-edged sword. It's like getting people to leave their homes and so many people. I mean, you think about the folks that live in Asheville and some of those places. I mean, Jon Snow, when he was in the General Assembly, he said, I'm closer to four other state capitals Mm -hmm. than I am. And coming down on Monday night, leaving on Thursday, it's just complicated. And then when you have women and there's this tear of motherhood and responsibilities. And I think we are evening the playing field at home in a way that we haven't seen before. But I laughed with a a, a male member one day and I said the difference is you come to Raleigh the laundry's still being done the groceries are still being done the kids are still being taken to school all the things are happening but I don't know how that infrastructure looks when the mom comes and we are (laughs) evening it out but a lot of times women are still the core of the infrastructure and when so you remove the infrastructure it just makes it a little more difficult you know for folks who think of campaign managers, campaign consultants, a lot of it is driven by what we see on TV, movies, books, the West Wing, when the (laughs) consultants come in and tell Jed Bartlett what the poll numbers say, (laughs) and then he's like, oh, I'm going to do it anyway, because it's the right thing. Kind of dispels some of the myths of what people might think of campaign consultants, managers. I mean, depending on the level, there probably is a little bit of that. But at the core of it, it is typically a young person who ends up spending a lot of their time, more than they ever should, trying to get another person elected and getting very little credit ever for that work. Because the candidate gets the credit and they get the win and you they often, I mean, I have um, very few people who have ever sort of acknowledged, you know, the work of the campaign manager. Said, I'm, so you've seen kids do it, but it's really just building a trusting relationship with these candidates. You end up spending so much time with them as their manager and doing so much. So it becomes a familial sense. And that's why when you even like Dylan talking about it, there's this loyalty that you build. Mm-hmm that stays with you. It is not glamorous. I mean, a lot of it is getting volunteers and driving the candidate places and being 
emotional support for them and their family when things are going wrong and they want to go put up a billboard and you're saying, no, stay the course. No, Um, you know, a lot of that. It's a great job, but you give a lot and you do see a lot of burnout and turnover and you don't see a lot of people staying the course. At the beginning, you said you wanted to go to D.C. What about North Carolina and North Carolina politics keeps you here? Well, as cheesy as this sounds, I decided, I don't know if this was the right decision, but I decided I would rather be a big fish in a little pond than a little fish in a big pond. And I felt like if you go to D.C., you're just amongst the masses and it's this rat race and everybody turns on you and everybody's out for themselves. And that's never been what motivates me. And so I liked the family. I liked knowing the people that I worked for. And, you know, I look back, do I have envy? Maybe not regret, but envy sometimes when I go to visit DC and I see all the hustle and there is an electric energy there that you just, if you love this as much as we all do, like I do think, God, what it, what would it have been like? Or I meet somebody and they have all these relationships because such and such was at the D trip when I was there and such mm-hmm. and such was at the DGA and the DSCC and, you know, the big D organizations. And I think, huh, or they all went to Iowa. But, you know, I've had a pretty good run here in North Carolina. And so I got to be with my family. I am old school when it comes to my family the people that can move away and just not be near them that's not me you know I've moved out of North Carolina one time I like to be an hour and a half from my my people and so I can go home I have nephews that I love and so being close to the core of my family has always been what kept me here we have a political consultant here so we gotta ask you what are, what are your thoughts on the 2024 election we are just days now before we get to the primary and already Kimberly feels like a race for the ages as far as presidential politics gubernatorial politics now we got this attorney general's race which seems to be off the hook can you talk about what you're looking for Yeah, well, in terms of the primary, I think it's still very quiet. I mean, I sit around and I think, we're getting ready to start, like, voting. And I just don't feel like people are talking about this election very much at all. And so I do think the primary is going to be a little bit of a sleeper. I don't know that there's going to be any big upsets that people weren't expecting. I think there's a couple of races, maybe the treasurer or some, that folks just, they don't know much about either one, and they could be close, but... I think we're just going to have to hold on for for the going into the general. I mean, I think in North Carolina, you continue to see every year just the spending go off the charts. I remember in Hagen's race against Tillis, they spent $100 million, and that was just mind-blowing. And I think you're going to see between the presidential campaign, the gubernatorial campaign, like you said, no telling what that AG's race is going to cost this year. You're just going to see some historic spending given what's at stake. You'll see some ads maybe like you've never seen before. We'll see. The presidential election always has an effect on down ballot races. And it feels to me like both eventual nominees, we have to assume President Biden and uh, former President Trump will be at the top of the ticket. It just feels like so much could go wrong for both parties here. As a campaign consultant, what does that factor into how you approach it? Or do you just kind of put that aside because you can't control it? 
you have to try to put that aside, right? Because if you don't, like, especially down ballot, like you have so few resources and North Carolina is such a big state that if you let that play in, things could go off the rails pretty quickly. But you do have, and you will continue to see in North Carolina, ticket splitters too. And that's what they're going to need across the board is, you know, for us to get some folks that are just not going to have anything to do with Trump this year and and go the other way. I mean, I think Roy Cooper, what, got 77,000 Trump-supporting votes or (laughs) something that year. It's going to be a wild one. Yeah. So we spend a lot of time talking about how our politics are divided. If you had a magic wand and you could fix something in our politics today, what would it be? So I actually have given this a lot of thought, and I think a lot of what have been taken off the table, but I think it is something I spoke to a little bit earlier. I wish the system was set up so that everybody thought they could run. And I don't just mean better pay. I mean, it could be closer to everybody, or you could you could get better pay, or you understood the schedule better, because you could have a full-time job and do this. I think the way, and this is not the Republicans' fault or the Democrats' fault, it's just the way it's structured is that you end up getting a lot of people that can are wealthy and work in a different way, or you get retirees because they don't have to have a full-time job. Sometimes you get attorneys because they can structure their, their schedules different. But what you don't get are a lot of nurses. You don't get a lot of teachers. You don't get a lot of small business owners. And some of the people that can't give up that part of their life because they have to run their business or be in the classroom or do something like that. And so I think sometimes we lose some really valuable voices that could be at the table and in the conversation and just bring a different perspective. And when will you be a U.S. Senator? (laughs) Well... I don't think that's in my cards. (laughs) After doing this so long, I don't know that running for office is is on the table for me. Maybe something local, but no, I I would not actually wish that on myself either to be in the United States Senate at this point, because it's not like West Wing and it's not like some of the other things you see on TV. Well, Kimberly Reynolds, we appreciate everything you're doing in North Carolina politics, your service to our state and managing campaigns. You certainly know how to do politics better. Thank you for being on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. The Do Politics Better podcast is sponsored by the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association. Beer and wine distributors in North Carolina are family-owned companies that directly employ more than 5,600 men and women across the state. The North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association works with the General Assembly to develop alcohol policies that ensure fairness in a competitive marketplace and promote responsible behavior. Visit the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association at ncbeerwine.com for more information. You know, on this 150th episode of the Do Politics Better podcast, one of the reviews that we get from listeners is they love when our guests talk about stories from the past. It was nice to hear Kimberly reflect a little bit on, uh, you know, her work in the Senate caucus, Senator Baznight, her obvious adoration for Senator Tony Rand. Makes me think, Sky, that one of the things that we need to do on the podcast is to maybe go back in time a little more. You know, Tim Kent really started this when he came on earlier this year and shared just some great stories about the old General Assembly and 
It's not to say that we're not living in great times now. We are. Just sometimes you need a little time and distance to uh, really appreciate what you have. And we will look back at these times that we're in right now. Senator Berger and Speaker Moore and uh, John Bell and Bill Raymond. We're going to say, man, those such colorful characters in that General Assembly. Kimberly, thank you for stopping by the podcast, sharing your story. Tweet of the week. The Tweet of the Week is sponsored by the North Carolina Pork Council, representing hog farmers around the state working hard to do agriculture better. Today, hog farms are reducing their carbon footprint by covering lagoons, reducing emissions, and generating renewable natural gas. To learn more, visit ncpork.org. This week's Tweet of the Week is from Wolfpack Karaoke. They are at Wolfpack Karaoke on X. It says, Me waiting for the announcement that Charlotte, the pregnant virgin stingray in Hendersonville, North Carolina, has finally given birth. And it has the gift that's like, it's been 84 years. I think that news really hit maybe like last week. What we know about this is that the stingray is pregnant and there are no male stingrays in the tank in Hendersonville. So either she was impregnated by a shark, so then it would be a shark ray, (laughs) or it was immaculate conception. I bet there's some other nervous stingray in the tank. (laughs) They should be nervous because I told you, I was like, what if she was assaulted? (laughs) What if she was assaulted? Yeah, we don't know if she consented. The babies look like him. (laughs) (laughs) Poor guys over there, but I'm a woman. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I mean, we're really taking modern issues into the tank here. (laughs) I I thought you were doing a reenactment of Maury. (laughs) Oh, so like we actually do a a DNA test. Let's line these sharks up. (laughs) Put them on Springer, uh, Maury Povich. I'm sorry, this is your stingray. Well, I'm not paying child support for that stingray. And then you have a fight. Then what is the what is this child going to look like? Let's just say, what if what if this is immaculate conception and Jesus decided <laughs> <laughs> you, you know where I'll do my next trick? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going down to North Carolina. Uh, <laughs> we're gonna confuse everyone <laughs> i told you i'd be back <laughs> charlotte also had bite marks on her body a common sign of mating among sharks okay. that sounds like assault to me it does sound like assault gosh this is in australian news <laughs> <laughs> the stingray's tank mates are two males named larry and mo really <laughs> a pair of white spotted bamboo sharks We've entered a new level here in 2024. Yeah. What else is coming? I don't know. Is this somewhat of a a prediction for what we're facing in 2024? I don't know. I don't think you need to speak that into existence. Yeah. So every year on December 26th, my mom makes us dress up and go to the dining room like we're going to a formal dinner. What we do are predictions for the next year. So if this is the start, we're only in February, what else is going to happen? You go. Oh, my goodness. I don't know. Jimmy Carter's been in hospice for a year. (laughs) Maybe he just (laughs) goes to the club. (laughs) (laughs) 
Kanye becomes vice presidential pick by Donald Trump. Okay. That is definitely within, the realm, within the realm, yeah. realm of possibility. The Cleveland Indians slash Guardians, they finally win a World Series. I didn't even know they changed their name. Yeah. But I did see UNCG beat Wake Forest. Really? Mm-hmm. See? We go to the NCAA Sweet 16, UNCG. In oh, in baseball. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're strong. In they baseball. were number one. Wake Forest was number one. Oh, well, look at us. So I, I thought that was exciting for you. That Sorry. is exciting. All right. The last time we had a calamity, I lost a lot of weight. So, you know, calamities are kind of good. Oh, this is for you. <laughs> Please make it about you, Brian. So maybe I lose some weight. Is this an entrance into you telling me and our listeners? Because you tell me every freaking day, oh, you're getting up early and working out no, and I'm not eating telling right. You, I'm not telling you that. You're telling them that. <laughs> do I do all those things? Despite the fact this man eats every hour on the hour every day at one o'clock when you're like time for a little snack i'm like we just ate but it's like an orange or or a clementine but you don't need it that's the thing but i like it i'm not trying to starve myself into losing weight my thing is i am creating a furnace within me that is just burning calories and you know what i'm throwing on this fire fiber Pears, oranges, mandarins, carrots, beans, avocados. Those are things I'm throwing on the fire. Hate to be that toilet. (laughs) (laughs) You really would. You really would. It's something else. So, yeah, go back to 2020. You were a terrible person in 2020. Let's all be very clear about that. No one saw me, but I was skinny. Unfortunately, I saw you, and you were a shell of yourself. What do you mean? You were so mean. I wasn't mean. Yes, you were. Yes, you were. And everything was scheduled. And if you were, if I scheduled something during the time where you needed to eat or take a lap around the block, you were angry and it threw off your whole day. And then you were mad at me all day about it. Like you were just so mean. And I was like, I like you better when you're a little pudgier and happy. (laughs) Fat and happy. (laughs) Nice. I wasn't mean. I think you're. No, no. I remember that very clearly. I just wanted to eat on my schedule. On your schedule, but if anybody else has a schedule, you won't be adhering to it. That's interesting, isn't it? It's it is something to really chew on. You got to take care of yourself out there, people. <laughs> Everyone else wants you fat. They're going to have you eating a bunch of stuff. You don't need to be eating at late at night. You got to say, look, I'm on a diet and I need to eat right now. Who's trying to force you to eat stuff late at night? You were. No, I was not. <laughs> you were interfering with my walks. Anyway, how many pounds have you lost since the beginning of the year? Well, I gained a lot of weight after the holidays, so I put on 15 pounds. In one month? Yeah. I've lost, though, 10 pounds. Okay, 10, so 10 pounds. You're up five. I'm up five <laughs> since the holidays. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Yeah. yeah, so if you look at me and you're thinking, man, he hasn't lost any weight, it's because if you saw me in December... Uh, or if you saw me in November, you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm five pounds heavier than that. But that's okay. It's all right. At least you're nice. But I am. But, <laughs> but I am. You know, sleeping. You know, sleep is the problem for me. But I am sleeping. Yeah. Congrats. Yeah. I'm trying to be like you because you'll just say, "Hey, I've got a good bed. I'm out of here." Yeah. I have boundaries. <laughs> yeah. As always, thanks for listening. We will talk to you all next week. But in the meantime, please remember to do politics better.
All right, let's get a snack. Seriously? 